Good morning. The reading today is from James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. James chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will, will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, do keep your Bibles open, please, as we go through the passage. I think you'll find that very helpful to follow through the text as I, I refer to some of the, uh, the different verses here. Um, well, we're looking at this uh, opening chapter in, uh, of uh, James 2. This is the first chapter of the main body of the... Um, of the uh, letter, and I've called it the best seat in the house. I'm not sure school chairs are the best seat in the house, but, you know, we'll have to pretend they are. Right, let's pray, shall we, as we uh, come to God's word. Father, we thank you that you are a, a God who not only loves, but who uh, proclaims and teaches us as well. As you came in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, in other words, that we can be forgiven and come eventually to heaven. Lord, and he spent all his time praying, and we thank you so much, uh, sorry, uh, teaching, and we thank you so much that you do, because otherwise, how would we know these wonderful things that you have in store at, at the end of history and in our lives? So, Lord, we pray now that you would teach us that although these words may be mine, uh, that each one of us would hear your voice in our hearts and our souls and that you would minister to each of us where we are this morning. Amen. 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 Um, someone once came to Jesus and asked him uh, this question. 
Which is the greatest command of God? And unexpectedly, he got uh, two commands for the price as one. As Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. You'll find that in Mark chapter 12. Uh, the brother of Jesus, James, wrote this letter to rally Christians to lead lives that do just that. Love God and love your neighbour as yourself. And to set an example of God's better way to the world. God's right way. There's no other that has a happy ever after. The question for us then is what does loving God and loving your neighbour look like in practical terms? And the letter of James is, is a kind of handbook to answer that question and to equip us to do it. After all, humanity left to its own devices isn't doing a particularly great job with either of these. Uh, these days, love for God is, seems to be in a very short supply, and as a consequence, love for neighbours is disappearing as fast as our polar ice caps. Our public social media debates are often inflamed, aren't they, with aggressive, angry language of polarised positions that judge others very harshly indeed, sometimes even calling for the complete silencing of others who hold different opinions, but those others are our neighbours. British culture glorifies the individual, my rights and my self-gratification, but it's at the expense, is it not, of my responsibility to others. And what on earth can the ethnic cleansing in Tigray or the war in Ukraine possibly have to do with love for one's neighbours? Well, those two fundamental commands of Jesus from the book of Mark can seem powerless and irrelevant, can't they? What's to be done? Well, actually it's this. Every person on this planet urgently needs to hear the gospel and see it in action and then come to the Lord Jesus themselves. But that requires us who are believers to have such a strong love for God in our hearts that we share his gospel heart to others, to offer up the best seat in the house to our neighbours. It's what Christ did at the cross for us. He gave his seat to us who don't deserve it. Well, this heart for others is the very essence of God's character, slow to anger, abounding in love. Now, if we can copy that, says James in this letter, then God's kingdom is going to make a very big impact on today's world indeed. So, as we've said, we come now to the main uh, body of the, of the letter from chapter 2, and it contains 12 short teachings calling for practical and wholehearted devotion to the way of Christ. Love God, love your neighbour. 
Each one's a self-contained unit, concluding quite often with a little sound bite. And we get one today in, in verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And these teachings open up what James means by the true religion that he spoke about at the end of uh, chapter 1, which Chris explained to us last week. To James, religion is the external behavioural outworking of our inner faith. And rather than continue with the word religion, he now picks up this word faith. And it crops up ten times just in chapter 2 as he ministers to our inner selves, our inner spiritual lives. And he's looking for healthy personal faith that is able to lead this effective, outward-looking gospel life for Christ. And his first area of concern, uh, this first area of concern to receive the treatment of Dr. James is the sin of showing favoritism. Too strong a word, sin? Well, let's see. In terms of one, uh, chapter 127, I mean, it's certainly a pollution of the world. Well, we're going to look at this issue of favouritism under three headings. The first is the treatment of others, to which I have subheadings, which uh, we'll, we'll come to. Secondly, favouritism is a serious sin. Bit of a spoiler, I know. And then lastly, gospel hope in action. So, firstly, the treatment of others, and this is uh, verses 2 to 7, if you're following along in your Bibles. Uh, one day, a young family's been out in the muddy autumn woods. On the way home, uh, looking really rather dishevelled, they stop at a car dealership. Uh, where, and um, the salesman, after keeping them waiting ages, finally approaches the dad, who says, look, I'm actually rather interested in one of these models, and I'd like to arrange a, a test drive soon, please. Oh, not really possible, says the salesman, uninterested in these messy-looking people who, in his, his eyes, are wasters of his time and effort. I, no, I don't think they can afford this car anyway, he's thinking. Oh, it, you know, it's likely to be weeks, really, until I get one in, probably even a couple of months. OK, says the dad, handing him his business card. Give me a call when you do, and we'll go from there. The salesman looks at the car and realises the dad works for an organisation that's bought two cars from him already that month for cash. Despite appearances, this dad is the dream customer. Oh, and look, actually thinking about this, you know, I might be able to get one in a couple of days. Um, would that be all right, he says, smiling for the first time. But given the sudden change of attitude, the father is already turning away. Thanks, but I think we'll look elsewhere. True story. Favoritism. All of us suffer because of it. It divides people into those we treat respectfully and those we stigmatize. Not only are we on the receiving end of it, but we generally give as good as we get. And so ingrained is it that it seeps into our church life too. But favoritism is unfair judgment, and it's not God's way, so it shouldn't be ours. 
In fact, it shouldn't be anyone's. I mean, if you're a non-Christian here today, actually there's a lot to learn here, even though James is fundamentally addressing Christians. Now, James has three sub-points on, on the treatment of others. Uh, firstly, how we treat people, verses 2 to 4, or how we treat people. Secondly, how God treats people, verses 5 to 6a, and then how the rich can treat people, verses 6b to 7. So, first sub-point, how we treat people, 2 to 4. James says he wants the church to be rid of favouritism, so he uses a, a hypothetical situation to illustrate the point. Two people come to church one Sunday, one well-dressed and obviously rich, the other badly dressed and poor. The rich person is given the best seat in the house, the other's told to go and stand at the back. And the story resonates because it's uncomfortably close to home and pushes all our discomfort buttons. A shabby hippie type turns up on Sunday morning. And doesn't it always make us feel a little bit awkward and unsure what to do? But it's easy to give a nice, warm welcome to the clean-cut and well-presented. Well, they look the part and we can relax. Oh, come on in, we beam. But, of course, these reactions have got a lot more to do with worldly standards of how to treat people, haven't they? In honesty, every single one of us has an instinctive reaction to make approved or not approved assessments on seeing somebody. And don't judge a book by the cover, they say. But we don't seem to be able to help ourselves. But these reactions, of course, are based on the flimsiest of evidence. From a superficial impression of a person, how they look, how they're dressed. It's what the car salesman did wrong and why he lost the deal. If we get it wrong in church, we lose the whole person. But far more serious, God might lose the person. Well, this is the second time already in this letter that James uses an example of wealth and poverty to teach us a spiritual truth. And I think he does so because human sinfulness puts so much store by riches and by the appearance of, rich, uh, of wealth. Money makes the world go round, says the song. It's right, isn't it? The world values a person by this single metric. And it's not God's way because it doesn't love your neighbour, it evaluates your neighbour. See the difference? Well, in verse 4, James outright condemns it. It's what he calls inconsistency of treatment and discrimination of others. Now, it doesn't translate terribly easily into English, uh, this verse. But he's pointing the finger not only at us corporately, but also as individuals. The problem is this, that our discriminatory external behaviour is not only bad for the gospel, but it betrays our 
inconsistent inner spiritual reality. We might proclaim the glory of Jesus, verse 1, but really we're in love with the world's glory, verses 2 to 3. Well, can any of us really pass this health check that Dr. James is giving us? In 6a, he seems to say bluntly, no, you have dishonoured the poor. Well, from this negative example, let's get to the good example of God and how God treats people, verses 5 to 6a. God doesn't discriminate on externals only, so he doesn't dismiss the poor man when he walks in the door. He looks at the inner person, and specifically, verse 5, at their spiritual hunger for him. That's the metric that God uses that matters. The poor often have a better sense than the more comfortably off of reliance on Christ. God doesn't choose like the world chooses. He chooses those who will accept the Lord Jesus. Now, if you're someone who's done that this morning, then be encouraged. Verses 2 to 4 might be a massive warning and a personal rebuke, but you shouldn't feel like a failure. That's not the point. You have a saviour who sees the inner you and loves you so much. He chose you to be his and is, is just totally over the moon that you accepted and he's going to share his glory with you, what we often call heaven. Now, perhaps this morning you're feeling rather like James' example of the marginalized pauper in verse, uh, verse 2 in some way. And, well, yeah, churches can have a tendency to neglect people, can't they? Albeit unintentionally. And it can look like churches only really appoint the well-heeled into central positions. But in God's eyes, everyone matters and will be honoured just as much. Here's how it works. Everyone called by God is poor. You could have two million pounds in the bank, but you're spiritually poor. And we're poor because we are in the world, a place of sin. But get this, as you respond to Jesus, accept and return his love when he calls you, so you become an heir to fortunes, the vastest of fortunes, way beyond your dreams, truly beyond your dreams. And it starts with the most precious things right now, love, faithfulness, and community from the Lord Jesus and from your fellow believers. And there's much more to come. Well, the third sub-point here is be realistic, verses 6b to 7. James now makes an observation about wealth. Denigrating the poor and falsely exalting the rich in life is not only profoundly wrong, 
but it's really very foolish. It's often the rich and powerful, big business and political elites who are quick to bully and suppress, to go to law over libel suits. I mean, there is always examples of this. And they are especially destructive of Christ, of his people and of his message and his teaching. Now, a word of caution here. There are very rich Christians who are wonderful examples of humility and fairness to everyone. I remember the wealthy, titled chairman of a city company I worked for, who always treated everyone with the greatest of respect and always had time for them. He opened doors for everyone, whoever they were. And one day the security people were at the door of the, the building were telling me um, that the staff who had time for them, instead of treating them as invisible and beneath concern, were very, very few. But there were some, like him, who did stop to say hello and ask. It made a very real, noticeable difference to people. Now then, what would James' uh, verdict be on Christchurch with regards to favouritism? There's always room, isn't there, for us to get better. And we need always to repent of discriminating between people based on externals. We have to learn to see as God sees people, to look at the inner person with impartiality and accept those that God accepts and love them as he loves them. All right, let's move on to our second major heading. Favoritism is a serious sin, verses 8 to 13a. Now, in the grand scheme of things, um, it might seem to us that indulging in the odd spot of favoritism, well, it's no big deal. Everybody does it, we say. But then pretty much everyone is on Jesus' broad road to destruction. Do look down at the verses here, please. Within this single paragraph, favoritism appears alongside both adultery and murder. It is a sin, and it is extremely serious. All three of them are law-breaking. James says specifically they break what he calls the royal law. And what he's referring to here is what Jesus said in answer to that scribe, the one we started mentioned at the start of the talk. Love the Lord your God with the whole of your being. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. These two short verses sum up the whole of the Old Testament law. But Jesus doesn't just do that. He also restates it in terms fit for New Testament times for his new kingdom. This is what he wants from his kingdom people, from you and from me. A couple of points about what it's saying. Firstly, 
in order to treat your neighbor as yourself, first, you must love God. Secondly, to love God, you must show love to your neighbor. There's no place for favoritism, just as there is no place for murder, for adultery, or for theft, or coveting come to that. None of these shows love for God, and they neither, neither do they show love for neighbor. Just trying to be a loving Christian and hoping it cancels out our indulgence in a spot of favoritism doesn't work. We're not here to pick which laws we accept and which we don't. Let's move on to the third point, a note of hope. Always a good way to end. This is uh, verse 13b. James ends uh, this section of teaching with one of his trademark sound bites. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, mercy means to show compassion and kindness to the miserable and the afflicted. And it contains within it the desire to help them. It's forgiving and inclusive. It's patient and slow burn. It brings everyone to the same place. Judgment by its very nature is discriminatory. And it, it includes people either this side of the line or excludes them that side of the line. And there's a finality about it. And such judgment, unless it's at the hands of the Lord Jesus, is often lacking in mercy and hope. And I think that's what James is getting at in, tw in verses 12 to 13a. We do, however, do we not need to be realistic? Uh, sadly, we're going to get this wrong and we're going to hurt one another at times. And especially when we forget this lesson and indulge in a spot of favoritism. When we're over quick to judge, sometimes when we judge after long prayerful contemplation even. But it works the other way around. If you're on the receiving end of what you think is unfair judgment from a fellow believer, the principle still applies. Be merciful. Forgive. Be slow to condemn because that's how God has treated you. And he wants you to treat others like that. This passage rebukes us all, because it describes us all. But though through this soundbite, James ensures that we understand there is still a hope. That's because God doesn't fail when he comes to us, when he saves, and when he judges we may not be consistent, but God is. We may not be law-keeping, but God is. We may not be merciful, but God is. You know, as I've studied this passage, the fundamental character of God, as he describes himself, really throughout Scripture, has really shone through to me in a way I've, I've rarely glimpsed before. Uh, in that way he describes himself, uh, I think the first instance is in Exodus uh, chapter 34, when God is speaking with Moses. 
And he says, The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. There's a song I really like by an American band called Blackberry Smoke, where the chorus says this, All my life I've been turned down, but one of these days I'm going to get the best seat in the house. Let's remember that by the mercy and compassion of Jesus Christ, all believers in him, however wretched, however undeserving, when God first called us and however we are now, are destined for that best seat in the house. No one will be left like that shabby pauper of verse 2, standing at the back behind a pillar. No matter who we are, what we are, we will not be turned down. We will no longer be judged unwanted or wanting. That's the awe-inspiring, forgiving and loving heart of God revealed in these verses and in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the glory of Christ that James is talking about in verse 1. Can we rise to the challenge to copy him as James wants us to do? Not being quick to turn down, but out of the same patient mercy that Jesus shows us, give the best seat to every person we encounter, irrespective of who they are. So let's remember this little soundbite of James. Be quick to mercy, be slow to judgment, because mercy triumphs over judgment. It's how we love God, and it's how we love one another, how we love our neighbor. Shall we, actually, let's just pray, shall we, as we close. Father, we thank you for your word. Your lessons are hard sometimes, and I think this is one of those. Lord, I pray that this week you will show us where we are indulging in that favoritism in our lives. Help us get this right as individuals, but also help us in Christchurch to get this right as a fellowship of your people, that we may be more winning and winsome for the Lord Jesus Christ in all that we do as we proclaim him Lord and Saviour. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.